This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Ken and Vaughn of Downline Ministries hosted a track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. Here's the session from Downline Ministries. want to spend uh, our time in this next session uh, talking about um, specifically practicals for uh, actually discipling millennials. Just wanted to get to this part. And um, uh, let, me, let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go through here. Father, I do uh, just ask again that you uh, prepare our minds and hearts for, for this, that we, we pray that this wouldn't just be an empty time of um, transference of information. I, mean, just, I just pray for something, uh, something to happen that is... Uh, initiated by your spirit in our hearts, that we would um, hear something that helps us to be faithful uh, in the Great Commission, especially as it uh, relates to um, discipling this next generation of church leaders. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we're thankful for the opportunities that many of us have, and many of those in this room are specifically working uh, with this particular generation. So just to ask for hearts that are compassionate and empathetic uh, towards uh, millennials and um, and just ask for uh, fruit and effectiveness to the ministries of those in this room. Just ask that you bless them uh, for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We pray that these principles that we talk about now uh, would be able to be um, implemented in ways that would honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me, uh, we have uh, hour 15, and so I want to utilize this time to, do, uh, to, to walk through very specifically principles for Discipling millennials. Now, I will say honestly that, um, again, my entire life of discipling men, it's only been with millennials because I'm just one year out of being one. <laughs> so I've only discipled younger men, and they've all therefore been in that age. So I'm going to tell you uh, really how I've made disciples. Um, again, uh, I've learned a lot from Soup and uh, from Robert Coleman, both of whom I mentioned yesterday, and, and really just applying the, the principles that Jesus modeled um, is always the way to make disciples. And, and so I think there's some things that are relationally unique when working with millennials, uh, but many of these things are transcendent principles that you would apply no matter who you're discipling. Um, I'm going to try to walk through these and then uh, also talk just a little bit from a pastoral perspective about um, uh, corporate uh, uh, structure around discipleship of millennials. Uh, try to give myself a little bit of time for that. And then I really want to make sure I leave time for Q&A. We haven't been able to do that yet in our track. And I, if you've had questions or building them up or they've, or even they come to mind during this track, I really want to make sure we have time to talk through uh, that, have that time for dialogue. So let me uh, let that be our goal for this time. So first thing I would tell you, we, we've, we've been talking about, um, and it's so, so, you know, everybody said this, but the more we talk about millennials like these aliens that are out there, I uh, just, just want to really kind of demystify that. Again, these are young adults uh, that, are, that are all over um, our neighborhoods and if you're into, if you work out, they're probably in your gym. Um, they're probably in your church. Some of you guys expressed having a void there, but others said they're everywhere. And so again, this is this is the uh, Danny's talk was helpful to remind me. Like this is the largest generation in our country. Okay, so this isn't like we got to go find them in you know hole somewhere. I mean these these are these are 20 to 38 year olds um, that are coming out of college and 
in uh, beginning their 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 uh, first season, kind of in a post college environment, and uh, we often ha- times have opportunities given us in the church, and if not, I think they're awesome opportunities to seek out to reach and disciple. So the first thing is, I think we want to have a um, a a, uh, a genuine excitement and um, and and st- a strategic effort to reach specifically millennials. I think this starts in prayer. So the first principle I want to give you, and uh, this will come right out of Matthew 9, um, is to be praying. So, so I think you guys are probably all praying. Um, I don't know what your prayers are, 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 are generally revolving around, but leaving a conference like this, they're probably going to revolve, I hope they're going to revolve around um, faithfulness in the Great Commission. I hope they're going to revolve around opportunities for discipling. Well, pray specifically for opportunities to disciple the millennial generation. It'll do something when you do that. Let me tell you what it'll do. In Matthew 9, um, pretty strategic point in Jesus' ministry where he's got these young, um, young disciples, young, young teenage men who've been following him, and now he's about to really give them the, the beginning of their commission. They're about to find out that they're um, not just followers, but he's training them to be reproducers. Like This is a kind of a critical moment in their development. And it says in Matthew nine thirty five, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You can imagine being the disciples, seeing that, and knowing that you know this guy's the guy. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He is uh, he's the um, the promised one, and he can do things we can't do. <laughs> he has authority we don't have. And then uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, look at this. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The crowds were crowds of lost and uh, even crowds of, um, well, folks lost in licentiousness or rebelliousness and, and lost in self-righteousness. But they were lost people. And Jesus didn't look at them the way that the church often views millennials. Now, I'm talking some stereotypes. And I don't want to be unfair with that. Many of you are here because you're so excited about the opportunity to love millennials. But our churches uh, and our society seems to have the general look down our nose upon millennials. Uh, one of the things I got out of Danny's talk was, again, you know, more of them live at home and, uh, you know, are having a harder time launching in life. But, but still, it was like 85% of their generation is making those transitions fluidly. And we're still judging all millennials by the 15%, the fact that it's 1% higher than the last generation on some of these, uh, some of these telltale signs of, you know, of, of their lack of maturity. So, so Jesus uh, didn't look down his nose at these folks that were lost. His heart broke for them. So the first thing I, I would say is, is our heart, are we, are we standing in judgment of millennials? Do we, uh, do we, uh, do we pride ourselves in our generation's ability to be responsible or hardworking or, you know, the greatest generation, which was not mine, but the, the generation defined by that, the World War II generation. Um, you know, it's that, it's that generational thing that happens where if you put, if you uh, boast in your generational stereotypical responsibility and therefore stand in judgment of the young people, you're not going to do a good job of reaching them. Does that make sense? If, you're just, if you just would prefer to be one who's a, on the sideline as a critic, then you'll be kind of the stodgy old dude who's a critic on the sideline of uh, these youngsters and their passivity, and you won't have much ministry to them and through them, which would be really sad. So I would say right now what breaks my heart is there are churches, and, and so this may be reflective of if there's a void of millennials in your church. It, I don't mean to, to speak into something I don't know anything about in terms of your specific context, but it might be that your church um, is a church that's very judgmental of the next generation. And so I would say is if you begin to pray for them, 
God will break down those seeds of self-righteousness and judgment in your heart and give you compassion for them. Not like any of us have been perfected, not like our generational sins or, or stereotypes were any worse or different. I loved what Wadzi told Ari, like, I, we just don't ever hear anything positive about millennials. I tell you what, I, I hope as the church we have something very positive. Like, uh, again, I said it yesterday, the, the missional energy of this generation blows away every other generation in our church. Blows them away. I'm so thankful for the millennials. I love the fact that they hold things loosely. They'll charge the battlefield. Uh, I love that they're not burdened down by the responsibilities of life. I just love their excitement, that youthful joy and angst and urgency. I love the millennials. Golly, whatever they're drinking, I want everyone in our church to drink. Okay, so, so just to start with, hey, God, give me a heart for them. They are the largest generation. They are the next generation of church leadership. I want to be vested in their lives. That, the, the, the platform you'll have for that is love. If they know that you love them, they will have relationship with you. And so you've got to ask God, give me a heart. So I never even got to read what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. His heart broke. The word there, splagnitzomai, it's a, it's a word that says his insides burst wide open. How about that? So it's not just this like, yeah, yeah, I care about them because I have to. Like he was burdened for their generation. Are you guys burdened for the millennial generation to know Christ and lead a redemptive movement of restoration in a church that's become quite hollow. Uh, I'm speaking from a southern context probably more so, but it's lost its edge. It's become this consumer seeker, uh, empty shell in many ways. I want to see them not just keep this thing going. I want to see them bring revival in the church. Okay, so a heart that breaks for them. And then he said to his disciples, hey, the harvest is plentiful. Harvest is plentiful. The opportunity for salvation to go forth is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I don't know what the, how the disciples viewed the lost, um, uh, the lost, again, maybe it was self-righteous, maybe it was just, God, the wickedness of these people. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what it was, but Jesus' heart broke, and he said, man, harvest plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. So what he asked them to do is see the potential. See the potential for redemption and revival and pray towards it and pray that God would raise people up specifically to minister to them. Now, if you hadn't read chapter 10, verse 1, it's, it's just like interesting. He just tells them to pray. Just make this your prayer request. What's cool in chapter 10 is, is uh, the very next verse. He then calls his disciples and gives them authority that they had not yet had over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. And, uh, and he names them by name, and then he, verse 5, sends them out. You know what they were? They were the answer to their own prayer request. But I think Jesus was very strategic. By asking them to pray, he knew that God would burden their hearts. Then he would send them out. So I would start the same way Jesus began to say, hey, pray for this generation. Pray for inroads. Pray for salvation. Pray for millennials. You know, and somebody was here yesterday said, they're, they're, all, they're working in my plant. I've hired them. I, I don't know what to Pray for them because then you'll be burdened for them. Then you'll, be, you'll have a sense of spiritual discernment when you're talking to them. You'll care about the state of their soul. You'll, you'll be thinking strategically about how to reach them. You'll turn um, uh, mundane moments into providential moments by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Be praying for them. That, let that be the beginning of your ministry of discipleship to millennials. And that also really humanizes them. They are no longer just stats, projects, 
something I'm supposed to do, have to do, or a job description, point on shot, reach millennials. Like they're, they're folks that you are burdened for. Okay? Um, that's where I'd start. Second thing is uh, build relationships with them. You're praying for them. Now actively seek to build relationships. How do you build relationships? So let's say you meet somebody, just new couple in town, whatever, somebody that your uh, wife comes home and says, uh, just met somebody at the gym, really like her, would like to spend more time with her. Like, how do you build that relationship? Well, you take initiative, you carve out time, even if you don't have it. You should probably share a meal, maybe a coffee. Um, maybe, maybe if you get them over to the house, depending on what season of life you're in. Uh, spend an evening together. Maybe some of you guys, maybe you go to a ball game. Let's go to in Memphis. We have to go to a Grizzly game. Great way to get to know somebody. The things that we do to, uh, to build relationships out of just desire and, and human necessity, um, do those things intentionally with these millennials that you've been praying for that God now brings across your path. So likely most of you, those are millennials in your church. Likely, uh, just from me hearing it breaks, what most of you are doing here, you've been tasked in some way or another in your church to reach or disciple or lead a, a lay ministry towards millennials. Well, I'd, I'd ask, how much time are you spending with them? Don't do that from 30,000 feet. Do that from being in the weeds, knowing them by name, knowing what the best way to spend time with them is. No, like, like become a cultural exegete of the millennials by spending time with them. Okay. If this was the, the guy that was sitting here yesterday, he may or may not be in here, that, that uh, manages the plant and has the millennials with him. He's managing them. I got that. I understand what that looks like. Is he taking lunch breaks with him? Is he grabbing one at a time and saying, hey, let's go get lunch today on your lunch break? And is that time altogether different than work? It's not a job performance review. It's, uh, man, tell me what's going on in your life. What are you interested in? I mean, build relationship. Take initiative. Break down those walls. Make sure it's, if it's just boss managing next generation of employees, then you don't have a whole lot of platform. You can set a good example in some certain things, but you don't have the chance to really disciple, okay? So you've got to build relationships. Now, let me get to a third principle within this. When you're building relationships, the third principle would be to meet them where they're at. Now is where you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, and you want to begin to turn this relationship towards a gospel-centered relationship, towards a spiritually redemptive relationship, towards a um, Christ-centered relationship. What I mean by that is, and this is different for everyone. This may be a millennial coming out of college into the young adult ministry in your church. This may be the guy you work with at the plant that you're, where you're managing. This could be anything. But you want, to, uh, you, want to, you want to ask a lot of questions. Don't let yourself be the one that's getting interviewed. Okay? You want to ask a bunch of questions related to life and goals and dreams and hurts and story uh, love asking for story. Uh, by the way, anytime I'm starting a new discipling relationship, or if got, which always is after prayer and after building relationships. So there's some time where I feel like there's a door open or a spirit leading, or maybe he has asked me, but there's an opportunity to really begin to more intentionally disciple an individual, or maybe at least that's a desire. I'll usually try to get a lot of time over a course of about 30 days, and I'll spend a whole month just asking questions. Literally, just constantly wanting to really get to know the heart of this, this young man. Um, what makes him tick? What God's done in his life? Where, where is he hurting, bleeding? Like, what, why? What are his wounds? Like, and, I, you know, it's not a weird thing. Again, started with a coffee, a hangout, a grizz game, something. 
But as we get closer, I'm doing a lot of questions. I'm not jumping into, you know, hey, can I disciple you? Uh, memorize James by next Thursday. Like, we, it's just, it, it's not this, like, fast forward, you know, uh, goal driven. It is a slow, sure, build trust in relationship. Um, sharing sharing uh, as things about my own life is that I really want to really get to know one another. And what that allows me to do, the principle I gave you was meet them where they're at. What that allows me to do is really know where this guy is. I don't know how else to say that. Just I know where he is spiritually. Uh, like I could, my wife could ask me at dinner, tell me about him, and it wouldn't just be, yeah, you know, just graduated from, you know, Memphis two years ago. He's an accounting major. Like it wouldn't just be kind of your, your uh, stat sheet. It would be, man, this guy has a real identity crisis in his life. He's always put his identity in opposite-sex relationships. I mean, this last one broke his heart, and he's super wounded and has this kind of uh, views Christ as distant Savior but has no intimacy there, is really wavering, and is kind of buying into, you know, a lot of the social justice issues grab hold of his heart, but there's no rooting in the gospel. Like, I, and, and how do I know all that? Prayer, intentionally building relationship, asking tons of questions, so that then... As I don't quit praying as I'm beginning to meet a guy where he's at. I'm praying, God, help me to be able to really minister to this guy. I'm building trust, building a relationship. And, um, and then it allows me, without fail, the Holy Spirit just kind of leads. If you will relax and give yourself time just to build a relationship and you genuinely care about somebody, you're going to feel led. Is this a guy I can incorporate into this group of guys that I'm meeting with? Um, is this a guy that I should meet one-on-one with? Is there a certain book that comes to mind that would be, uh, Prof. Hendrick said sometimes you gotta, you got to just tie a tourniquet on where a guy's bleeding before you can start maybe a normal course of uh, discipleship like you would do with a guy. You know, um, and so uh, yeah, I remember one guy um, who had been dating my wife's little sister um, very seriously, and they had just broken up. And just from me being married to Catherine and him dating her younger sister for a couple years, we knew each other pretty well. And he was called me and just was so upset. And uh, uh, But he lived in another city, and he was actually senior in college. Actually, he was in grad school and was finishing grad school. And I I'd, uh, just kind of said to him when he called, I tried to comfort him a little bit. and yeah, But I, I just felt so like, man, I can't really, I don't have any magic words that's going to make this hurt less. And it just hurts, and I'm really sorry. And, uh, you know, I love you, and I'm sorry that you're going through this. And I just had a little bitty kind of, Time, time's going to help, man. Just take this to the Lord. But I felt like I really couldn't dig in with him. And I, I just said, man, I wish I was in the same city with you or something and could walk through this with you. But just know I'll be praying for you. Well, he finished his degree program a few months later, um, sh- showed up on my doorstep in Memphis, literally pulled up at the door, knocks on the door. And I said, uh, greeted him and said, what are, you, what are you doing? Well, I graduated, had a couple different job opportunities, and I decided to take one here. I said, oh, man, that's great. That's cool. Welcome, welcome to Memphis. That's exciting, man. That's unbelievable. You're gonna be. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I want to tell you why I took the job here. He goes, remember when we were talking on the phone and you said, man, I, I just wish I had, uh, I wish I could have more time with you and 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 you know help you through this. I was like, so what? And uh, I said, you just moved to Memphis. He goes, yeah, man, I'm here and I, I need help. Now, this guy was just in a lot of pain. He was hurting. I found out what I thought. I thought initially, maybe he's just trying to figure out how to get back together with the the gal, but. But really, he, um, he's just hurting, and he didn't know how to move past this. And he even understood pretty quickly that there was some idolatry in his life and that he didn't have a, he didn't have a healthy uh, relationship with Christ that could sustain him through disappointments. Uh, and he had a very unhealthy attachment to this gal 
that was not only sinful but just unhealthy. So the first thing we need to do wasn't be like, I mean, great, I'm doing a Roman study. I want you to come in here. No, it was sitting on the couch, um, praying together, letting him uh, be emotional, caring for him, relating to him, and then talking through some scriptures about how uh, when Christ is not head, um, that it's like being in a being in a turbulent sea with no anchor. We're just tossed to and fro, uh, man. And, and talking about how uh, empty and difficult and turbulent life really is and what it means to really be anchored in Christ and what it means to really trust Christ and beginning to have some rhythms and some patterns and some habits in our life that would help uh, lead to a, uh, a trust in Christ and an identity in Christ. And so that's where we started because that's where he was. But by the way, in that first 30 days, I mean, we were together constantly. Constantly. And that was kind of like when God just dropped in my lap and I wanted to be faithful. And again, but constantly listening and trying to just, it was like, it was like the way you put Neosporin on a wound. It was like just constantly rubbing God's word on his heart. Just praying God's word over him. Continually talking about what the scriptures say is true versus what uh, his, the culture and his flesh had told him was true. And showing where, where he had been lied to and, and kind of rebuilding his life on Christ and not on um, his acceptance from a, uh, from a dating relationship. And then... After a few months, he did. Uh, he, he did join a group of guys I was discipling, which, which something I'll, I'll say about that real quick because I'll forget to say it later. I loved small group discipleship, and I think, I think it's the best model. I, I'd say that first because that's how Jesus did it. I feel like if it wasn't the best model, he'd done something else. Uh, there's nothing wrong with one-on-one. I try to get one-on-one time with every guy I'm discipling, um, and sometimes that's difficult. Absolutely try. I, and one-on-one time is needed and invaluable sometimes. Small group discipleship is so powerful because they're not just learning from me, they're learning from one another, and obviously I'm learning from them as well. But just that ability to riff with one another and have other guys that care and other touch points. I love it if I've got a, a lost guy that I'm, uh, I guess you would say, you know, evangelizing to, but building a relationship with uh, in hopes of uh, uh, him coming to Christ. One of my favorite things to do, if the time seems right, if the Spirit leads, if there's enough trust there, if I can get this guy who I'll work out with into this group with these three young guys that love the Lord and are pursuing Him hard, man, it's like almost a surefire salvation is on the, on, I mean, it's like this guy's going to get saved. The reason is all of his influences and peers are lost people. All of a sudden you get him around three guys that just look totally different. Something, they're just, something's different about them. And what happens is they become friends. And I invite them all to do things together. And like I watch that relationship build. And then it takes off. By the way, I'll invite those other three guys. Hey, man, it's an unbelievable opportunity to love this guy and show Christ this guy. They begin. I love just hearing about the things that they're doing together. And they begin. And so all of a sudden there's just there's four guys ministering to this lost person, exemplifying the joy of life in Christ. And all of a sudden his, his world gets rocked. He starts having a very clear experiential difference between his lost buddies and his Christian buddies. And these aren't just Christian in name. These are like Christ followers. And he sees death and life all of a sudden. And that's what I'm telling you. Almost without fail, anytime I've had the opportunity to bring a lost guy into a discipleship group, almost without fail, I have to think through this carefully, but almost without fail, that guy pretty quickly comes to Christ. So uh, small group discipleship is very powerful in that, in that means, and it's a great chance for all the guys that you're discipling to be thinking missionally in that context as well. But meet them where they're at, okay? Uh, let me move forward to uh, fourth principle. Don't, don't ever... Um, don't ever become just routine. Uh, in other words, always value quality time with them. In other words, that's the way you built the relationship. 
that's the way the relationship needs to continue. In Jesus' uh, discipleship with these guys, it wasn't, um, he didn't orient them around deep, uh, authentic relationship and then ever, ever move to a once-a-week once uh, once meeting. Now, I'm the first to admit my life is just crazy right now. Uh, four boys and the music, you know, recitals and the sports schedules. And, uh, and then our church has been in a rapid growth season for four years and there's just way more needs than I can get to and leadership development and the residency with our young pastors and like it's just it's just crazy um, and so one of the things that would be easy to do is just relegate the the, the young men that I'm discipling to uh, Thursday mornings and that's kind of it and I've just realized like it kind of quickly becomes a Bible study and Bible studies are good I, I, there's a place for Bible studies but it's not discipleship discipleship is inherently relational uh, Dawson Trotman said, it's not merely taught, it's caught. Jesus' discipleship never, it didn't start in a classroom and never reverted to a classroom. It was always relational. And so I've got to be, and, and you'll need to be, strategic and very intentional and thoughtful. I don't have much time to give these guys. Back when I was uh, in the years with Danny and when I was single, and man, I, Danny and I spent a crazy amount of time together. Some of, the, some of those joyous years of my life were just being with him, and I had so much more time to give. It's difficult right now, but it doesn't mean uh, it's not my very purpose in Christ and the first orientation of my ministry. It is. So what do I do? Um, let me just give you some examples of how you continue to value time. Um, oh, uh, maybe a couple times a month. So not at some crazy rate. A couple times a month, we'll have one or two of the guys in the D group over for dinner. And, uh, and my wife and I understand what that looks like. And by the way, she's got a group of gals she's discipling, so it may be one or two of her gals as well. But they'll come over and, you know, well, I'll cook burgers. They just hang out with our family. That may seem pretty um, incidental, but it's not. Most of these guys, in fact, the guys in my group are all either single or young marrieds. And uh, one of them's John, who's who just about to have a baby, is a second baby. One of them's got one kid. The rest are young marrieds without kids or, or single. Um, if you were to talk to them right now, hey, what's the, what are the most... Um, valuable things you've learned uh, from being in a discipleship relationship with Ken. I don't have a doubt that every one of them would talk something about my family. I don't have a doubt. And by the way, it's not, they wouldn't talk about how perfect it is. I think they'd say the opposite. They'd find out what it really means to be a husband and a dad in the midst of the imperfect nature of a family. But that's not something I've ever done a lesson on. That's merely them being in the house, uh, Sometimes on our family vacations, not always, but uh, on two of our family vacations, we've taken a few of them with us. When I go on mission trips, uh, I, I don't go on a mission trip um, without inviting any of them that can come to come, and I'll fight to get one or two of them on the trip. Just too, pa- too powerful. Our, our missions pastor has seen a study that says um, 10 days on the field is the equivalent, in terms of building an embassy, uh, it's the equivalent of two years of normal relationship. So think about that. And listen, if I have a, if I have a, a, a young guy that I'm just beginning a disciple and I've got a mission trip coming up, I'll say, hey, I really want you to come on this trip. Is there any way we can make this happen? I'll help you. Let's figure it out. Because I'm thinking, man, I fast-tracked that relationship two years if we can get 10 days in India together. You just do. I mean, you, you've been on the field with somebody. You know how it is. All the inside jokes, everything. You see God move. You're incredibly dependent. I mean, just the intensity of that. Invaluable. I try to go on one uh, international mission trip every single year, part, partly because I want to keep my heart red hot for the things of God and the nations. Um, I, I think I need that. I don't want to just become kind of bubblified in my view of Christianity. 
But secondly, it's the greatest discipleship tool I've got. Again, on every trip I've been on, there's been at least one, usually two or three of the guys in my D group uh, are on the trip with me. So it's one of the greatest avenues of disciple making. So most of the guys I've had in group for one year, two years, three years, but you add that mission trip on, it's really three years, four years, five years in terms of relational intimacy. Um, I got lost on what I was saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you got to be strict. We use the home to maximize time. Uh, usually if they come to dinner, they'll linger. And uh, we, every night we have a routine just like every family does. I'll spend some time uh, reading to my boys. And then the, 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 my favorite part of every day, I hated missing this last night. I always feel it when I, when I miss it, is we just get on our knees and go to the Lord in prayer. I've been doing it with my uh, t- oldest son since he was two, and he's 10. And um, it's really neat to see the, the, uh, the maturity and depth of your child's prayer life from two to ten. <laughs> you know, even my four-year-old, he's still in the thank you, God, for my brother, Jonathan. I really like him. Thank you for Luke. I sometimes like him. You know, we're still in that stage. But you watch that mature um, until the ten-year-old, he's really praying some, some gospel-centered prayers. You know, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing. I get to know where he is in his walk with Christ by listening to him pray. The, when he's really beginning to understand his sin, when he's beginning to be broken over his sin. Just seeing that, and, and then that leads me into great conversations, and this is now just family discipleship. But, uh, but I'll mention this. When those guys I'm discipling, when they get to come in and be a part of that, when they just get on their knees with us, we all line up, and we roll through, and they hear those guys pray. I, I, uh, they've told me this is the reason I share this with comments. Um, they see that one time, and they go, if God ever gives me a family, that's what we're doing. Like, that took one night change the way they're going to do family one day. Does that make sense? And all we're doing is praying. But figure out ways. I use my family. That's the, it's one of the greatest ministry tools I have. Uh, I generally eat three meals a day. Not always, but generally. I, 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 I get a lot of... So when, when I'm having... A, we study the Word on Thursday mornings. But uh, if I hadn't... If, if, if Trotter and I hadn't gotten together and it seems like it's been a while, I'll say, hey, what are you doing? You got any breakfasts this week? A lot of times they'll take initiative, a lot of times I'll take initiative. But I just kind of make sure there's a rhythm of one-on-ones within what we're doing in the group. And again, mixing in trips, uh, mixing in mission trips, and any time I do things like this even, um, I had a chance to have Jamie. Uh, y'all had Jamie, he shared yesterday. He's one of the guys I've had a chance to be uh, the, the discipler in his life since he was a, um, a 10th grader in high school. Uh, uh, Danny, since he's in 9th grade in high school. These, these guys are now just gifted um, mature, godly leaders who, anytime I get this time with them, it's a, it's a give and take. Uh, it's really, they've moved from Timothy's in my life to Barnabas's. And, and man, I'm, I, I, I learn as much from them as they do from me. That's the great joy in the end of discipleship. But all that begins in a loving relationship. Never sacrifice, never let it become something that time is not central. Okay, um, uh, start small. Um, start small and raise the bar. I think it would be a fair way to say this principle. Uh, I think some of the mistakes we might make in our church, especially if, you're, if it's a discipleship program and you're going, hey, sign up for this three-year intensive on learning what it means to follow Christ. And, you know, they just burn out before they started. Uh, I start with just building relationship, earning trust. It, you, you're, and, and, again, it's not for any ulterior motive other than to love them, to know where they are. Once you are in a loving relationship with somebody you care about, they become spiritual children, just like First Thess 2 says discipleship is. And John would say there's no greater joy than, than the spiritual children we have in the faith. That's what they become when you really love them. Well, start small would be, you know, I just invite them to be a part of a, usually in what we do with our gospel journey at the church, we d- designed it this way for the sake of this. It's usually a 9 to 12 week study that we'll do in the, on the Word of God. 
And I'll just invite uh, a guy, whether I'm doing that one-on-one with him or whether he can be a part of a D group, I'll just invite him to, to study, um, right now we're in Galatians, to study Galatians. I'd, I'd love to study God's Word with you for the next nine weeks. Just see what God might teach us. I'd love to have that experience with you. Love getting to know you. I'd love to do that with you. Matter of fact, I've got a few guys we're on Thursday. Would you be in that group? Or maybe I'm just going to do it with you separately. But that's just a tool I have that I want to have a, uh, a relationship that is centered in God's Word and led by a spirit. And that's just a platform for the Word to continually breathe and speak into our life in this relational context. But now, by inviting him to that group or in this study, I'm planning on really giving priority time in my life to this guy and a small group of guys. Sup always said, you got to see the masses through the man and build the man to reach the masses. I cannot spend time with all the people that come to Harvest Church. I can't spend hardly any time with hardly any of them. But I spend a lot of time with a few. Now, you could look at that and go, ah, how could you do that? What about all those people that want time and they're not getting any? I know. Let, let me tell you something. I grieve that. My heart splagnitzomized that. But uh, I'll be ill-effective in ministry if I just try to meet everybody one time before I die. Like my goal is, by God's grace, to raise up Danny's and Jamie's um, and Ben's and John's and Trotter's. My, my goal is to see a multiplying movement of godly men who can lead and disciple. Now, do I pray for the masses, love the masses, preach the gospel masses? Yes, Jesus modeled all that. But he didn't do it apart from um, investing most of his time with a few. So I want to be faithful. To, I think, by the way, I think that's part and parcel to following Christ. If you really think about following Christ is, he was burdened for all nations, and so he invested, in fact, 85% of his time in his public ministry was spent with those 12 guys. I don't care if you're a pastor or a lay leader. Could you look at your life and say, I'm spending some ridiculous 85% of my time with a few spiritual children. By the way, they don't start as spiritual children. Maybe this millennial in the workplace that you've been praying for, you're spending massive amounts of time. Not just with your friends, you know, going bowling after work, but with this cat, trying to learn him, love him, pray for him, and move towards a discipling relationship. And I promise one day when that guy becomes a Timothy, becomes a Barnabas, it'll be the greatest joy in your life. And it will multiply the gospel. Um, so, um, so start small. You want to study Galatians for nine weeks. Uh, Jesus said, follow me. He didn't, he didn't tell him three years from now they're going to crucify me. And, um, and you'll be really afraid, but I've given you all the authorities given to me. I'm going to put a spirit inside you. You're going to lead this massive movement. And then all of y'all are going to get martyred separately and in nasty ways, proclaiming the gospel all over the world alone. And it's going to be devastating and gruesome. Are you in? It was just, hey, follow me. I'm going to show you where life is. And they did. And then by the time they were martyred, they were ready for that. Okay? So uh, I trust that God will give us the grace that's sufficient to our needs in each season. But start small. And raise the bar. Um, raise the bar meaning may start in a study by, uh, if I get a chance to do another study with these guys. And again, the studies are kind of mile markers in the relationship. The relationship is really the, the, the foundation. The relationship doesn't quit, but you know, we have some, our, our, our curriculum is the Word of God. We just want to continue to learn and meditate on and, and, and uh, grow in God's Word. And, and God's Word is what's kind of guiding our maturity and our relationship in Christ. And um, we'll be memorizing God's Word together. Uh, uh, something Ariana did with Wadzi today was, was an example of raising the bar. I begin to share the leadership of the group. Uh, these guys begin to, in fact, I do this all the time. Hey, Robbie, would you mind uh, leading next week? 
I don't, you know, that's just kind of raising the bar a little bit. You don't say anything about it. It's no huge, don't make it a bigger deal than it is. I might meet with him one off to make sure he feels comfortable and prepared to do that. And then all of a sudden he's leading the group. What that's teaching him is there's going to come a day, and, and even as a part of this process, these guys are ministering to, trying to lead other guys to Christ. And as that happens, they're forming their own D groups. By the way, the, ways, the way these um, young guys graduate from the group with me, at least the intended way, and it's, it's, it's uh, almost always the way, is they're, they're with me for some amount of time, usually two or three or, or maybe linger to four years. But, uh, but the end is not that they've cleaned up their life and they just look more Christian than they used to. It's not the end. Uh, the end is that they have a D group of guys that they are living their life with, pouring into, modeling. And they, they, they just know how to do that, Never, not because I sat down and put on a piece of paper. It's the Great Commission. Did you all ever see any Q&A in Matthew 28? Go make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you, and lo, I'll be with you at the very end of the age. First time ever the disciples don't ask any questions. Uh, I don't think it's that Matt didn't include that section or ran out of ink. I, I believe they understood exactly what Jesus meant because man, that's what he just did with his last three years. The guys don't ever have any questions. They just begin to do the same things with others that I've done with them. And, uh, and they begin making disciples. And at some point, they can, they can stay a part of this group if they want to, need to. But every guy that kind of, and, and I do about three times a year, I just kind of sit them down and talk to them and, and kind of commission them to go. And they can remain or not. Um, but guys will kind of come in every year. There's a new guy or two, and there's a guy that's kind of pushed out into mobilized ministry. Now, at that point, that's that Timothy DeBarnes. I always want to be a resource. I'm always there. These are the guys that have my cell phone number and I can call anytime and I'm extremely responsive to. And um, that's, a, that's a, you know, in church a couple weeks ago, uh, we had another guy preaching. He was talking about um, somehow Second Timothy, uh, Paul-Timothy relationship. And I just had a few guys come to mind. And I just in my bulletin kind of wandered for a moment. It made me think how much people really listen to me when I'm talking. But uh, kind of wandered for a moment. And, um, and I just started writing the names of the young men that I've had a Paul-Timothy relationship with. And I wrote those names, and then I'd write what city they're in and what their ministry looks like in a, in a word or two. And I just ended up making a column on the front and back of my bulletin. And I looked at that column, and I just really thought at the end of it, and these are all millennials, all uh, guys, different areas and spaces of church ministry all over the country, though mostly in Memphis or the southeast, and I looked at that list and I thought, you know, this, at this point, I mean, this is my spiritual legacy. I mean, these guys are, uh, are the, the greatest joy in my life. I mean, my own biological children who um, I, think that, I think that three of them know Jesus and, and, and I'm on that same discipleship journey with them. Uh, but then not just my biological children, but my, my spiritual children. And I, you know, that, uh, I don't feel like, I'm not saying they're mine, but these that God has given me to invest in. And... Uh, Excuse me. I just started thinking about how much I want to remain an encouragement in their life. Like I want these guys to just go and flourish and multiply, and just the magnitude of that, the potential of that. And then I thought about how crazy much time was spent, late night discussions, laughing together, crying together. Over oh oh, uh, everyone except two I had been overseas with, and so I wrote the country as well. And, and I, I just started looking at it going, gosh, just the massive amount. I almost got tired looking at the list feeling like how much of my life I've given to a few men. But then the, it was like this 
this moment of Paul in prison writing this letter to Timothy probably was like the amount of time. He'd given 16 years to Timothy. But you know who he's writing to in his dying moments? Literally, he's going to be executed any day. It's not a church. He didn't write to his largest church. didn't write to his most screwed up church. He wrote to one guy who he'd given his life to. And uh, just don't want don't to live in such a way that you don't have those guys to write deathbed letters to. It's exhausting. It's emotionally taxing. It's your life. You're pouring your life. It's not just giving them some outskirts margin. or like You're giving your life to pour Christ into them. And uh, the payoff is tremendous. Okay, a few other principles here. Um, start small, raise the bar. Remember you're training a leader, not a follower. So again, uh, uh, the goal at some point, and Ari did a good job talking about it, is to begin to stretch them. See in them what they can't see in themselves. See potential leaders for Christ. See disciple makers in them. Uh, see leaders. The, these guys, uh, these guys, they, they almost never see that in themselves. And if they do, there's, there might be some self-righteousness that you've got to deal with. But usually they, they just come humble and hungry and don't really know, don't really know who. Uh, and you get to see through them. You see their gifts and help them to mine those out and, and give them opportunity to stretch them. I remember one time Soup was, uh, took me, the guy that's discipled Soup, he's an he's a, uh, 87-year-old man who pastored for 30 years and is just uh, one of the most uh, knowledgeable men in the world I've ever met. And, um, and one time, Soup said, hey, let's, uh, let's go here, Brother Herb. Um, I'm going to drive him up to this camp and, and hear him speak. I'd, lo- I'd love you to go. I said, oh, gosh, I would love to go. And he kind of pulled a Ari Wadzi on me a little bit here. We, we drive up there, and um, we get up, and, uh, and uh, Soup gets up to introduce Brother Herb. And he said, hey, I'm here. And he just gave this kind of story about how Brother Herb poured into him and how much that had meant to him. And Soup said, hey, you're not going to hear me speak today. And then he talked all about Brother Herb. And I said, oh, this will be great. We're going to hear Brother Herb teach. Soup was scheduled to teach the Great Commission and then Brother Herb. But he said, you're not going to hear me. So I thought, this is great. We'll hear Brother Herb. Then he talks about Brother Herb a while, and he says, but you're not going to hear him speak either. And then I was like, what? You know, me and Soup and Brother Herb came up here. And, uh, and I just got really nervous. I didn't even have my Bible. And, um, and Soup said, uh, there's a young man. And I'd been with Soup like three or four months at the time. And he goes, I've actually taught um, the Great Commission to this young man. And uh, so we're going to see how well he's been listening. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And, I mean, I wanted to run. And I was not a public speaker at the time or anything like that. I, I just, again, this wasn't like my sweet spot. I wasn't prepared. But I got up there. I had to ask to borrow his Bible. Fortunately, he has pretty good notes in there. Uh, but I, uh, I just tried to kind of walk down. And I stumbled. And I was trying to recall and teach them the things that Soup had taught me. And I remember thinking, this is going okay. Like, uh, just wishing Soup could fill in all the gaps. There was about 40 uh, college counselors there at this camp, and uh, we finished, and, uh, and I thought, you know, that might have been an average, but it wasn't great, and, and uh, we were leaving, and, man, Soup acted like I just won the Super Bowl. He was like, man, that was unbelievable. I'm like, no, that wasn't really good at all. He's like, oh, man, I'm just so proud of you, your courage, and, man, you said some great things, and, man, you said some things that I've never even thought of. And, I mean, just so encouraging, so life-giving. Now, here's the reality. We all know, I know for sure, those 40 got a version 4 of the Great Commission when they could have had a version 10 with Soup or Brother Herb. But Soup's vision, he saw, I don't think he would have had me do it if I was not going to be faithfully teach what Christ teaches. I don't think he was just going to compromise completely what went forth. But he was more concerned at stretching and developing and creating a leader 
than he was those, those students getting a version 10 of this talk. Does that make sense? So when you've got some, here's my point. If you're working in church ministry and you're working with millennials, empower them. Give them some opportunities to lead. I know you might be able to do it at a 10, and they might be a 4. Entrust them with some things, not compromising. If a guy's, you know, not a believer, don't have him teaching Romans, okay? But within what a guy's, a guy's showing faithfulness, let him stumble through some things in the ministry to millennials. Give him some opportunity to lead in evangelism, uh, lead some study, lead some prayer, um, uh, or, organize some uh, 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 community outreach with you. Like, give him some rope to lead, and then find the things that you can encourage, and you'll begin to build a leader. Okay, you don't just want to train followers. Don't just want to train guys, get them out of the world and clean them up. Like we're trying, and look, no, nobody just, just day two is ready to lead and go and blow. Like they got to be trained. They've got to be, and so a lot, of, a lot of the reason millennials, the guy asked this in the back yesterday, is how do we empower them in the church? A lot of millennials, uh, the attitude of the church is you guys can sit and learn, and you need to sit and learn, and shut up while you're at it. Uh, I really think that's a bad mindset. I think where they ought to be, and, and again, faithfulness is the, is the key to identify here, but surely if they're not faithful, then we have a discipleship issue. Whose fault is that? No one's born into them. But as you're intentionally, if the staff and if the older men and women in your church are discipling the millennial generation, there ought to be some signs of faithfulness among some that you can begin to empower and trust in leadership. So pretty quickly, your church ought to be littered with millennials in leadership if you've got any culture of discipleship. Does that make sense? So if I come into your church and there's no millennials anywhere in leadership, I would say the problem is not just your millennials are, or, uh, are just particularly wretched. I'd say you guys aren't making disciples here. Or your discipleship process is, is, uh, is not on par with Christ. These guys had been with him less than a year when, he, when in Matthew 9 happened. Less than a year. They're going city to city with authority that's been entrusted to them to do real ministry. Does that make sense? How is that modeled in your discipleship processes? So you've got to begin to raise leaders by giving them opportunities in ministry, to make mistakes, to screw up. Again, you're in their life. You're speaking. You're correcting. You're using the Word of God to do what it does. Correct, rebuke, encourage, and train unto righteousness. You're speaking the truth in love. You're, you're having, but see, you've earned that right to do those things because they know at the end of the day, this guy loves me, cares about me, wants to see me develop to Christ. That's why he's even giving me this. You get to say all kind of hard things and good things and soup called out all kinds of sin in my life. And I loved it. Because nobody ever cared enough to do that. Nor anybody ever kn- known me well enough to know the deep secret sins of my life. I didn't, I'd entrusted those things to me because he'd entrusted himself to me. And so I'd entrusted those things to him. And man, he began to be a truth teller in my life and that accountability. So, so relationship starts everything. Keep that relationship. Entrust ministry. I hope that every one of our churches, if the 21 to 38-year-olds aren't leading, then we have a real discipleship problem. Okay. It's not just that we don't know how to disciple millennials. We just don't know how to disciple. All right? Okay. Um, say a few more things here and then uh, make sure I get time for some questions. Um, one thing that if you're uh, discipling guys, I would encourage you to do is to expose them to other faithful men and women in the body of Christ. This will be part of that tethering them to the beauty of the bride, the local expression of the church. Uh, I'd be really sad if my guys couldn't point to from real relationship with men far more godly than me. That'd be really sad to me. If I'm the ultimate standard bearer for Christ, then they're missing out. I mean, my, my, they're getting a far, 
less version. You know, you know what the you know where they're supposed to get the whole picture of Christ in the in the body of Christ. So what I do is I lean on our church. We have unbelievable men. Gosh, praise God, we have just our elders are real elders. So any of our guys, in fact, the one thing I do is I invite them to elder meetings. Not just them, but a lot of young men in our church. Invite them to, just to come to hear the heart of the elders as they uh, talk through the leadership issues of our church and as they pray and labor in prayer over the people. Uh, I invite them into counseling meetings just so they can sit and listen and, and so they can uh, gain a heart for others and the brokenness of their lives and addictions and messinesses and marriages and struggles. Um, and so they can see the heart of our elders and pastors. So I try to get them just time around. And by the fact, when I go on a mission trip, I told you I invite them. I also usually try to invite one of my mentors. I want them to hang out with them. Does this make sense? So I want my guys to have a picture of Christ that is far greater than me. I'm, I'm, I'm one, one piece of that puzzle in life, but the puzzle's a lot stronger than I am. Okay, I don't, I don't form the full picture. I give them some things. I give them a very jaded view of the whole and, and 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 there's just there's weaknesses and insecurities in me and blind spots in me so the composite picture is far greater in so expose them to faithful men and women in so doing let me give you one more involve them in the body of christ i said this yesterday don't disciple them outside of the church disciple them in the church but you'll you need to do a little ecclesiology whether you use a book to, to help you as a Grudem systematic theology or something, but you, or whether you just can, can navigate the word a little bit enough on your own through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, and Ephesians 4, to teach them that in the mind's eye of Jesus Christ, the church was to have an expression in the local church, and that local church was to be a display of God's glory to the world. Teach them what the church is and what it isn't. Like, start by asking them, what do you think of the church? And you may get a lot of negativity. Um, it may be rote religion to them. It may be, it's going to be whatever their experience was. And for most of them, that's a negative experience. That's sad, but for most of them, it is. Um, we need to redeem that with healthy churches, but for most of them, it's a bad experience. So you've got to start up and go, you know what, I'm sorry for that. And, you know, maybe you had an experience similar, but say, can I, uh, can I tell you what I think Jesus sees when he sees his bride, Ephesians 5, that he gave his life for? And begin to give them an appreciation for divesting their life into a, a body of believers where their gift edifies the whole and vice versa. And this body operates literally as the body of Christ in ministering to a world out there. And it's a family. You know, the, the, the metaphors used in Scripture are powerful. The building of God, the bride of Christ, the family of God. Um, and, and, and try to reset their vision for what the local church is, and then say, hey, how can we together as a D group, how do we help build and establish the vision of Christ for local church at harvest? That's, that's our question. For you, it's at your church. So even if the church is unbelievable dysfunctional in every area, how do we be one glimmering seed of what the church is meant to be? How do we divest ourselves in what is broken to help bring redemption and bring health that we are presenting everyone mature in Christ? In other words, you know what, you know what I want to do? I want them to lose themselves. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of their brothers. I want them to, to take the focus off of how the church is not meeting them in their need to how am I meeting others in their need. And when they do that, the church begins to meet their need. Does this make sense? They become a giver and not a taker. 
they, they'll forget all the ways the church is dysfunctional because they'll be laboring on behalf of a healthy church. They'll get lost in other people's issues and not, that they can't even think about their own. And they'll be being formed into Christ in that in beautiful ways. Now, again, church health is a big deal. If the church is so broken and unhealthy that it's an unhealthy place to be, then you probably need to help them find a healthy church, even if it's not yours. I don't know if you need to be there. It depends on what your role is or why God has you there. But obviously, all this goes much better in a healthy church with healthy leadership. Okay, and that may be something you have to teach them to find, and that would be really sad, but it could be outside of your church. But you want to ultimately try to help establish and build that within your church. Okay, um, let me stop there. What time is this session over? Shucks. Okay, we got 15 minutes. Let me stop here, and uh, save, I'll save my closing thoughts. Let me just give some time for Q&A right here. You guys can ask anything that's really been a part of this track, anything that maybe you feel like we haven't answered that you just really want me to speak directly to, whether I can or not. We'll see. But if you'd like me to try, I will, or if it's directly out of this session. So let me just just say, what questions do we have here on discipling millennials? So you're saying this obviously happens best naturally by proximity. If you live close, but somebody lives right now, are you talking like another city or across town? What are you talking about, Val? Okay, but they're somebody in another state or another country. And how are they leaning in? You said they're kind of leaning in. Like, what does that look like? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so somebody that's just pursuing a relationship with you, but they're in another state. It's a great question, and what a, what a privilege that is that they see something in you that they're hungry for. So I would try to be just that. I would try to be an encouragement. And if, there's a, if you can, I don't know if we could host somebody from Poland next weekend at our home, but if you can uh, extend that uh, that invitation, they can spend a weekend. Again, that mission trip thing, 10 days worth two years. I don't know what four days at my home's worth, but probably something. Uh, so as much as I can, <laughs> that's how it started. Yeah, so there's some intimacy built and there's some established. So yeah, I would try to be an encouragement. But one of the ways I would try to be an encouragement is by saying, you know, if we were in the same state, I'd love to be much more um, consistent and in, in you know, really build a relationship with you. I feel like from afar, hopefully I can serve as an encouragement. And, and you, your hunger serves as an encouragement for me. But is there a woman in your context? I'd love to be an encouragement by praying that God would bring you a spiritual mother. And I'll be consistent in prayer until there's a Valerie near you and uh, somebody. And, and here's what I look for. And here's what I've had in my life. Is there someone like that in your church, in your area? And I'd even network. I mean, it may be, I don't know how remote this is. But I'd network any way I can. Now, if they're in a a missionary on the field and there's no one, I, I might say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna, if God's calling me to do it, I might write him a letter every month. I might try to be a steady source of encouragement. There's just only so much you can do. I mean, again, if it's a life calling, I might go visit them sometimes and it may really be a remote disciple of relationship. But my first instinct would be, is there someone that can really be on the consistent with them, that they can really follow? Uh, because that's what you really want. You want a sense of following a godly woman who's following Jesus, being in their life where the quality time can just come out of quantity time. That's not something you can physically give her right now. And if, if I can't do that, or they can't find it, or I can't help them, or that's not possible, then I say, what can I do? If God's burdened me for this person, what can I do to encourage them to at least be a cheerleader, somebody fanning the flame that God's uh, put in their heart? How can I encourage them? Yep. But one thing I wouldn't try to do is it's not, I'm not the functional Savior. I don't think, man, if they don't have me, ah, they're just going to have something lesser than. I don't believe that. So I'd say, man, who, who does God have in your context that could really be a, a Paul to you in this season? 
Like, let me encourage you towards that end. Find that. Like, they, they're, they're, if, their sanctification can't be tied to you. So that may be a good lesson there. Yes, sir? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, such a good question. Matter of fact, that was one of my closing thoughts for, uh, uh, so I'll shut out now, for, one, for you guys that are in pastoral ministry. I don't know how many that are in this room, but um, I don't think a church can develop a culture of discipleship unless the senior pastor is making disciples. Now, there's a corporate aspect of discipleship, surely by him using his gifts, Ephesians 4, and feeding the, the meal spiritually and involved in all ways. He's a part of the corporate discipleship. Remember I said, I think there's an individual responsibility we all hold within the corporate responsibility. If that pastor is not leading a Jesus-like life of seeing the masses, preaching, loving, teaching, healing, and building a few... If that's not now, if that's his lifestyle, by the way, the example itself speaks volumes. It will set the table, and men will follow. If he's not doing that, it's very hard to establish a culture that the leader is not in, leading. It's just very hard. So, if a pastor has a, a conviction towards this, understand this: it's a lifestyle. So, I don't think it's fair for me as pastor to say my job is to make disciples. Sorry about you guys that work at the Ford plant, International Paper. Or, I don't know how you're going to do this. Y'all are just going to have to have more hours in the week than me. That's not true. I got a job description different than yours. It's pretty exhaustive. There's a lot going on. Um, I don't use my 40 hours a week or 50 or whatever it is to, uh, as disciple-making time. What I try to do is, with integrity, have an early morning. We're studying the Word. And then I bring those guys with me. I eat meals with them. I take the much. I try to do what anyone, anyone following Christ could do. Uh, I think it's of integrity. I think it sets the, it's the example. And I think discipleship is a lifestyle. It's not something I merely mark off. It's not just Monday mornings. It's not just the time in the Word. It's, it's the way I live life. It is trying to intersect and get maximum time with guys that, that we're chewing on God's Word together. We're praying for each other. We're wrestling through tough issues. We're confessing sin together. I didn't mention that part. It's a big part of it. Um, but building enough trust where you can really be confessional, a confessional community that that's um, not in hiding anymore, but it's, man, the, the guys in my D group, by God's grace, uh, they know the stuff about me that I would not share in this room, okay? Um, I've entrusted that to them. Uh, uh, they've done the same thing. Like, we are, we are there's an honesty to our relationship. We've been willing to be vulnerable. We share the embarrassing stuff that we think about that doesn't honor the Lord and that we struggle with and need prayer and need confession over. okay. Not to go back into that, but uh, just ne- did not mention how important confession of sin is as a part of the discipleship rhythm and, and that you're modeling that. You model it, you'll open the door for it. And that's just a part of our healthy uh, uh, repentance and faith pattern of, of growing in Christ. So anyway, as a, as a senior pastor, um, it's, it's a lifestyle that I've chosen as I've chosen to follow Christ. I, I think it's part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. If I went out of the pastorate tomorrow and, uh, and became a high school football coach, because that's what I would do. If I wasn't pastoring, I would still have the exact same routine discipling men. Wouldn't change one bit. Have a morning, I'd bring them into my life as much as possible. Anytime I can take them on trips, be around them. I'd, I'd stretch them by bringing them in and having them do chapels to the guys before the games. Like I would just, it, just, that's my lifestyle. This is where I am. I invite you to follow me as I follow Jesus. As long as I'm following Jesus, I just don't want to go alone. I want to invite you in. And so um, senior pastor role, there's certain things I can do that I can't do as a high school football coach and vice versa. Um, there was one pastor I spoke with in uh, uh, 2005, uh, 2002, that uh, he's a theological giant in our city. He's the, he's the, I think he's the smartest man in Memphis. <laughs> I 
don't know how I could possibly prove that, but uh, I think everyone that knows him agrees with me, so I'll say that. Um, but I was intimidated just to be around him. Uh, still am. just feel like an idiot. You know, and every, everything I say just sounds so... It's like I don't speak the same language that he speaks. So, um, but anyway, this guy is well-respected pastor, theological giant, and I was having this conversation about how do you really uh, make disciples in the church, and he said, well, what do you mean by discipleship? And I said, well, I'm certainly no expert. I just had this relationship with soup, and I explained that. And he sat there twirling his glasses and staring at me. When I finished, I kind of lobbed it back out there, and he just stared at me. And I couldn't tell whether I had said something offensive or stupid. Or, and it was long enough. It probably was 15 seconds, but it felt like five minutes, you know, of just him twirling. And then he goes, you know what? And I was like, i just waiting for the bomb to drop. He said, this is the most convicting conversation I've had in years. He said, I used to do that. Uh, I was like, you know, what just happened? Uh, but the Holy Spirit convicted him, and he thought, you know what? Pastoral ministry has strangled out personal disciple-making, which I'm called to do. Now, by God's grace, that was in 2002. For 15 years, I've watched him reorient and bring out. Matter of fact, it's been a joy of mine. Anytime a young man comes from his church to me and says, man, I need to find somebody to side with me, I say, you know what? Why don't you check with your senior pastor? And I always go, what? No, he could never do that. I said, just go ask him. And two or three guys I've had that conversation with, he has personally begun discipling them. So it's a lifestyle. It's not, it's not something you just, uh, you know, you really don't quit doing anything you're doing. Now, you may have to make sure you're not overworking in other areas and just have no margin to give. You've got to have a healthy lifestyle of work. But I would ultimately say, say my lifestyle following Christ includes inviting young men to follow me. And it's, it's one of the healthiest things you could possibly give to your congregation, even better than a perfect sermon every week. If you've got to go to a nine on your sermons because you give an hour of that extra Saturday sermon prep to uh, hanging out with D group guys, that I think will pay off 20 years later far more than the extra hour of sermon prep. I do. So it's a matter of what, what, what's the central, what's the strongest, what's the most fundamental priority in your ministry? I think it's discipling men. Okay, your, your voice is important in the corporate discipleship, so is many other voices, but, but don't forsake the personal responsibility and, and try to encourage others to do it. Yeah, so a lot of, they asked us to repeat the question. So a lot of the things that I've intentionally spent in time that they might catch things and see things, but what I specifically teach them is the question. You know, I've been through many resources over the years, and by God's grace, again, about 20 years, and in, in, uh, just because that's when, when Soup was with me, and it's, that's what started my life. I thought, this is what it means to follow Christ. I want to always, as, as long, praying for young men to disciple. By the way, you start praying for somebody to disciple, uh, most people go, I just don't know who I'd disciple. I don't know a millennial. Ask the Lord. Say, God, I'm just going to keep asking you for a millennial to disciple until one shows up. I promise you, you won't come back to me in 30 days going, I just don't know anybody anymore. It, it, we don't see what we're not looking for. Okay? So ask the Lord okay, uh, of the harvest. He said the harvest is plentiful. Okay, so for 20 years almost now, just discipling young men, I, there are J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men. It's my favorite resource ever. But, but let me tell you what happened for me. The evolution of 
just tons of great books and, and, uh, and Bible studies and just so many things that was the curriculum of what I teach. Always trying to keep in mind, meet them where they're at. And sometimes I would just get discombobulated. Like, this, this guy's not, or the young marrieds need a study on being young marrieds. And let me go find one. You can find a study on anything. Um, and, uh, and, but then, you know, these guys aren't really in that season. I do, I do too. Like, I was always kind of trying to make it all work and figure it out and just taught lots of different things, lots of different groups. Um, usually trusted resources, you know, Kent Hughes, Disciplines of a Godly Man, uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Guys. I mean, I can just, just list off all kind of things that have been meaningful and impactful in terms of studies. But the, where I feel the greatest about what I'm truly giving them is when I'm depositing the Word of God into them. Even when it, uh, I don't know exactly what's coming down the pike or what they're going to be in life, with, or, or if I didn't feel like it's the best discussion, like if it's the word of God, I believe it's going to produce fruit in a way that I'm not sure counterfeit God's will, even though counterfeit God's is really insightful. It's one of my favorite books. Great read. But I, I love centering in God's word and not someone's thoughts on God's word. By the way, I use commentaries when I preach. I value other people's thoughts on God's word, but I just really want the word of God in there. Second to that, is um, the Word of God speaks to everything that we're ever going to need to know and come across in, in, in life. It just does. It just does. So I've come to the place, and I'm still growing this and learning, where I'm not saying I don't care where I start, but I want to have a rhythm of we are, and by the way, part of my goal is to teach them to be self-feeders. I think Ari mentioned that was mentioned on the stage yesterday. Uh, that little tool we created is so simple um, and we're going through, a, 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 you know, about six books of the Bible a year in a very easy, manageable way. It's teaching them to uh, study the Word of God and hear from God. If I'm only with a guy ten weeks, one, one, one uh, path, we call them paths, or three years, what I'm feeling really good about is God's Word is what's alive and always talking with relevant uh, truth into their life, and they now are a self-feeder. So even if I don't have great commentary, even if the discussion was, you know, I didn't really know exactly where the Holy Spirit wanted to go in that, I just have a ton of confidence in the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In fact, I'm putting all my eggs in the basket these days of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It's somewhat mysterious. I'm, and by the way, it makes me very prayerful, very dependent. I'm begging God to really show up in these discussions and bring stuff out that needs to be unearthed in our lives and discussed in truth. And we have a little text group, which is pretty normal in these days. We're always texting things during the week, insights we've seen, words of encouragement, prayer requests needs. So we're like a little... We, and, and by the way, that's the, the most best use of, of uh, you know, every day, you know, six or eight texts with my D group. It just says KVD group in my phone. The, and that group changes every year. But that is a place where guys are, they can be in the middle of the day and go, hey, guys, I need to check in real quick. Uh, this is what just happened. And, man, what we studied yesterday has never been more relevant. I can't even believe this. I need you all to pray. So we're walking with Christ together thanks to a simple um, aspect of technology that we can use. But, but to answer your question, uh, I'm not following the same path. So, so our church has written three years worth, a three-year path. It wasn't just because that was Jesus' discipleship ministry. It just that's kind of where we landed. And you can go online to Harvest Memphis. You may have already done this. Uh, it's under Resources, and then it says Gospel Journey. It's not something we charge for. I think, I think there's a small charge for if you, if, I think you can download it for free or you print it. And if you want us to print it and send it to you, there's a very small charge for printing and shipping. But it's a bookmark, that get, and we start in the Gospel. 
starting the Gospel of John, and, and, and every path has a little title that kind of shows you where you're aiming. We do have a little field guide for leaders to kind of help you with some of the theological tensions or truths that might arise in there. It's not meant to be what you teach. Don't teach the field guide. It's meant to be something that you help uh, be theologically fluent in some things that might come up in each, each week's reading. But it's the simplest thing in the world. It's trust in the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so to answer your question, I really am, uh, want to put the Bible off. I've, I've been renewed afresh constantly at how the Bible deals with everything. Everything. And it's the wisdom of God and the Word of God, and I think we often undervalue it. So we do supplementary reading. Sometimes we'll read some other things, but man, just be putting the Word of God in their heart and trust it. Okay? Anybody else? We have one, maybe one minute left, so one last question. Yeah, harvestmemphis.org is, is our church. There is, um, and then there's a resources tab. Call resources and then click on Gospel Journey. Now let me mention one other resource uh, that Downline has created that I think could be invaluable for your library. It's one I've also used in the past. Uh, we created something called the Downline Builders. This will be in downlineministries.com. I'll tell you what the strength of this is. We actually created something where you can go in. If you've got a group of five girls, say, and you're going, you know what, I really want to teach them on prayer. Like, I just really want to teach them on prayer. Like, I know God's Word will deal with that, but I don't know how to put together say, I really want to study on prayer. Um, it's $50 a year for a subscription, and then you can make out as many curriculum studies as you want. And you can, uh, you can go in, fill in the bubbles, they're this age, and I want to study on prayer, and it'll give you all the lessons in the library of over 300 lessons that are on prayer. And you can drag and drop and form your own table of contents. And then you can send it electronically, student guide, to each of those girls in your D group. And they're doing a little study on prayer, and you're coming together, and you have a teacher's guide for how to lead that study. Pretty cool. It's the only technology like it I've seen. It's customizable curriculum. Um, so, in fact, one thing we do at our church, we do the gospel journey, and we do it 10 weeks at a time, three times a year, so we have gaps in between. In our gaps, we encourage people to meet for confession and prayer, to read a book study, or to, do, to use the builder and study something topically. Does that make sense? So, and again, our, our language and environment is such where everybody kind of understands and values that. And something I say at our church, by the way, if you're going to use a resource like this or do this, something I say all the time, I, I, I love to say this. Every time we're approaching the next path, so uh, we're just finishing a path right now. We'll start another one in January. So in December, I'll say things like, hey, uh, we do some of our church that's uh, one of the greatest ways you can grow in Christ. We do something called the gospel journey. And um, if you're a young woman, well, we want you to have the whether God has you at Harvest Church for one year or 20, we want you to have the chance to get with a godly woman and really in a, in a real relationship with this woman, learn what it means to follow Christ. How would you do that? You would sign up for path, our next one will be path seven. When we get through path nine, we'll start back over. Path seven, uh, in one month, we're going to start this path. If you sign up at the back, we'll help you find one. Or even better than that, if you have met in your time serving or in your time in church or any other way, you've met a godly woman in our church. You've seen them, you've watched them, and it's, you know, or, or the wife of one of our elders or whatever it is. You have one month. I would encourage you to ask this question. Have 15 seconds of boldness and go up and say this. Hey, uh, I just watched you with your husband. I love the way you lead or teach. Could I go on path seven with you? And if you ever have a godly woman tell you no, you come see me about that. <laughs> but listen, the thing, is, the thing is, everyone in our church has now a language. Instead of this whole, hey, will you disciple me? And what does that mean? And it's mass confusion. This simple language has given us the ability to have a movement. I also say on the flip side, I say, hey, men and women that have been in the church for 20 years, and scared to death to make a disciple, don't know what that means. Uh, 
here's your gentle push out of the nest. You got four weeks. Find some millennial, find some young person and say, hey, um, you could cold call it, but you might say, hey, I, I love just watching that you're faithfully every week. Love watching your worship. Seems like every real heartful. I'd love to get to know you. You want to go on past seven together? So everyone's asking the same question, which gives us a chance. And by the way, by the time a month, I do it four weeks out, two weeks out, and one week out. And I basically say, hey, don't miss past seven. Like, why, like why would you miss the chance to walk with somebody in a relationship that's centered in God's word and led by his spirit? Like, why, why, why would we not do that? I don't understand why we would... Uh, There'd have to be some really exceptional reason. I'm not trying to shame our people. I just think, what an opportunity. I don't want to miss past seven. I don't want to miss it. I think we had about a thousand folks uh, on a path with somebody this last, this present path. That means there's a thousand folks in a discipling relationship. Does that make sense? Now, we do a lot of equipping and training and other things around that. But, but, uh, but I don't remember what my question was. But that is... Uh, Oh, oh, how you, yeah, yeah, love to be able to say, give them a language, get it on the bottom shelf. They know I'm on the path with guys. I'll use that as sermon illustrations. So it's just creating an entire culture, and that tool just gives us a, a, real, a real ability to do that. And in our leadership training, we train them with the other resources. Yes, Valerie? Quick question. Um, it's a Not even them. We, we all, we, man, I'd love to be, again, soup still in my life. And by the way, it's not just soup. i got probably five men I'm constantly gleaning from that I feel like are spiritual fathers to me. And I try to get as many time, much time with them as I can. And they're the guys I invite on mission trips just like the younger guys. Lifelong learners. Lifelong learners. So I, I, when I say don't myth past seven, I try not to micromanage or control it or say, now you need to lead one and you need to. Just, let the, I, just, just don't miss the path. You may, Valerie, you are a good example. You may go to a godly woman in your church and go, you know what? I've been leading some paths. I'd love to just be, a, just be a learner in this season. And you're a woman I want to get to know. Can I go on past seven with you? And she may go, ah. That's crazy, Valerie. You go, no, I see the Lord is signing so, so much in you. Because really it's a relationship that's going to re- really be built. And so you may be leading one and in one, or you may be, you know, we, don't really, uh, we, we don't really govern that. We let the Holy Spirit. I want all of our people in discipling relationships and, let that, and let, let, giving them the, the tools to take initiative with that. Does that make sense? And again, we do training. I don't want to not say that. We do, uh, before every single path, we retrain all of our leaders. And we ask you if you're leading a group to come through it, even if you've been through it five times in a row. So we constantly are training leaders uh, to be more. And, and that's also where we use the Downline Institute. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably giving you a little too much now. But Downline Institute is a nine-month uh, journey in learning the entire Word of God and how to make disciples. And you can do that online to, no matter where you are. The whole program's online. There's a live community in Little Rock in Memphis uh, presently, if you're in one of those two cities by chance. But uh, we, we use that for leadership training as kind of a, as a, if somebody comes out of that, we know they've got great hold, handle on the Word of God and they have a like-minded vision for what it means to make disciples, okay? Okay, um, I know I, uh, I went about three, four minutes over, so I think we have break in, uh, what's next? Lunch, great. Let me, let me pray. Father, help us to be faithful with all this, that uh, there is so much that could be said, and, and I think we're just scratching the surface, but I pray your Holy Spirit would really take what's been said now, uh, root it deeply in our hearts, convict us, lead us, and again, just uh, help us to discern um, uh, where the harvest is. Help us to see what you see and give our lives faithfully, trusting you with the fruit, but knowing that there'll be one, uh, because you are, even when we're faithless, you are faithful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Downline Ministries track called Discipling Millennials, engaging the next generation of church leadership with the gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast 
at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.